Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So uh, let's do a little quick recap from last week where Deacon Rich and Chris did a little intro to uh, the sacraments, right? Intro to the sacraments. A general definition, let's say, we're going to do a general working definition of the sacraments that will we'll say this. It's an outward sign. Did you cover this? Outward sign. Anybody? Can anybody fill it in? Outward sign of invisible grace instituted by Christ. Yeah, to give grace. An outward sign. Something outward, something visible, physical, instituted by Christ to give grace. So Jesus Christ himself, he is the great, think of him this way, he is the great sacrament of the Father. Jesus Christ is himself the great um, making visible the invisible hidden nature of what God is, right? He's the visible face of the invisible father. He, while he was on this earth, he instituted, uh, in the scriptures we can see he instituted seven sacraments, seven ways in which he would make himself continuously available, continuously present to humanity throughout all time. So the sacraments, we can think, think of them this way. They're the continuation of the incarnation. That's a nice way to put that. The continuation of the incarnation or the prolongation of the incarnation. We're prolonging the incarnation. And why would he do that? It's because we're not angels. We're not angels. There's a great story um, that when they were uh, renovating the apartments, the papal apartments, uh, so John the 23rd, Pope John the 23rd, Pope St. John the 23rd, he was Pope at the time, and the architects were reviewing the, the designs with him, what room was going to go where, all those things. And uh, the architect presented the Pope this grand plan, and the Pope was reviewing it, looking at it, and he wrote on it, just a few words in Latin on the bottom, he wrote, non sumum angeli. And that's it, he just gave it back to him, he rolled it up, and he went back, and the, uh, the, the architects were like, what does that mean? So they found a priest that speaks Latin, which is like, there's a dime a dozen in Rome. They found a priest that speaks Latin. They're like, what does that mean? It says, we are not angels. They're like, why would he write that? And they realized they forgot to put in bathrooms in the new plans. There were no bathrooms in the new plans. And the Pope said, hey, we're not angels. Meaning we have bodies. We have bodies. We're fleshy, right? I think that's so great. Fleshy. We're fleshy. We're fleshy, right? We give we give and receive love through our bodies, through our bodies. That's part of the tragedy. That's part of the sadness of what, ha- what, like, what we feel when someone dies, right? Like, it's not just that their soul is gone. Their body is gone. This person who I hugged, this person who had her smile and her laugh and her recipes and all of those things, that person with his or her body, they are gone, right? So our bodies matter. We give and receive love through our bodies. In fact, doctors have... Uh, um, have found out this amazing, I mean, these, these amazing truths about our human nature that babies, in fact, babies who are born who don't receive physical touch, probably a lot of you know this, um, they struggle immensely to the point that, they, that some of them even die. The deprivation of human touch is so catastrophic to the human person because we are bodies, non sumum angeli. We're not angels, right? All right, so Christ took on flesh in order to communicate God's love to us, right? He communicates God's love to us in and through the body. And in that way, he takes us by the hand. He, he, he's, he's, he touches us. 
right? The gospel today, uh, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. He comes in the room, it says, and immediately he takes her by the hand and raises her up and cures her of her fever, which I think is so great. Again, this is a total aside, but um, there is nothing so small that the Lord's like, no, no, just get over it, suck it up, right? Like fevers matter to the Messiah just as much as corpses matter to the Messiah, right? He comes in and he's attentive to both fevers and corpses. I think so often we're like, no, 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 don't worry about me. It's just a fever. Don't like this thing I'm going through. It's just a fever. He's like, no, no, no. Fevers matter to me too. Like if Simon's mother-in-law had a hangnail, he would have been like, can I look at that? Right? Like he probably would have, right? So that's our Lord, right? So he touches us through the sacraments. That's what we hear in these encounters in the scriptures that he continually touches humanity, right? Think of the one he cured the blind man. He cured the blind man by spitting on the ground and smearing the mud into his eyes. It's crazy, but that's what he did. Just how incarnational, how fleshy, how material that was, right? It wasn't just a wave of the hand. He never just waves his hand. He's always touching. He's always touching. I love this quote. The God who is simple, uncomposed, and pure spirit himself became incarnate, taking on flesh. The invisible God entered into creation in the physical person of Jesus Christ and became visible. And while he dwelt among us, Christ, the God-man, instituted sacraments to impart his grace and continually give us his life. That's what I've been saying. These sacraments are not merely intellectual acts, not just waves of the hand, but are intrinsically stuffy. Right? We like that. Just as the invisible God was made visible through the physical person of Jesus of Nazareth, so too God's invisible grace continues to flow mysteriously to humankind through matter in the sacraments of the church. I took that from a paper I wrote in the seminary. <laughs> Just quoting myself. <laughs> Told you I like the quote. <laughs> no, I wrote that. Yeah. True story. Father Wu's class. Okay, anyway. All right, here's, here's one I didn't write. This is Leo the Great. What is visible in our Savior has passed over into his mysteries. So in the early church, one of the words that they would use to describe these things that Christ instituted, these encounters, these fleshy encounters, they called them mysterion. Oh, I got you, bro. I got you. Mysterion, right? And so mysterion became like the, 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 the word that the early church used to understand these encounters. That gets translated from Greek into Latin as sacramentum, which is where we get the word sacrament, right? So the mysterion, the mysteries, are the sacraments. So what Leo the Great is saying, what is visible in our Savior, so the visible interactions that Jesus had with people, right, all of that, what was visible in him has passed over into his sacraments. So the same kinds of encounters that the people of first century Palestine had with this man, Yeshua of Nazareth, the same access they had to him, the same physical, touchy, stuffy interaction they had with him is available to us in the 21st century in his sacraments. This is very important, right? Because if Jesus is inaccessible to us, or if we're deprived of a, a kind or quality relationship 
just because of when we're born, that just, like, that wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't make sense. We have the same access to that same real person that they did. That's astounding. That's really astounding. So here's another way to think about it. Uh, Pink Floyd, any Pink Floyd fans out there? I'm just kidding, we're not talking about Pink Floyd. Okay, refraction, we're gonna talk about refraction. So you've got white light, it hits a prism, and it gets refracted, it gets bent, it broken into seven colors, right? The rainbow, right? So you can think of it this way, Jesus, the one sacrament, when he hits creation, he's broken into seven different sacraments. Isn't that interesting? Seven colors of the rainbow and seven sacraments. I wonder if that's a coincidence. Mm, I don't know. What's the sign to Noah? The rainbow in the sky. We got to reclaim the rainbow, people. All right. So what I'm going to be talking about today, what I'm going to be introducing you guys today to is the sacraments, two of the three sacraments of initiation. So the three sacraments of initiation are baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist in that order. So raise your hand if you are not baptized. Right on, my brother. Do we have, are there, there's more than just you, right? Our new uh, minister, Dominic. Okay. Okay. Oh, man. Get yourself a wetsuit, bro. <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay, so when you, at the Easter Vigil, when you are initiated, you'll be baptized, you'll be confirmed, and then you'll receive First Communion, all in that same Mass, Grand Slam. It'll be awesome. Um, I don't have time to go into this today, but the way that most Catholics receive the order of those sacraments is baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, which is theologically problematic, because Eucharist is the pinnacle, the summit of initiation. So the way that you're going to receive initiation, Easter Vigil, Baptism, Confirmation, Eucharist, let's just get that in our heads. That's the proper order. And one day, maybe in my lifetime, maybe in some of our lifetimes, the church will, like, we will return to that proper order, even for, for kids, okay? So Baptism, Confirmation, Eucharist. So we're going to be talking about those first two, Baptism and Confirmation. Um, Oh, okay, yeah, this, I meant to show you this. Okay, so the, the, the one white light is broken into these seven different sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance or, uh, or confession, anointing of the sick, matrimony, and holy orders. Look at that dome piece right there. Another good-looking guy laying on the floor. That's... Uh-huh. In that moment, I was crying so hard I, there was just every juice that was coming out of my face onto the, on the cathedral floor. And then, as I, then I, like, as I stood up, I got super paranoid because there was just like this puddle. <laughs> exactly. And like Bishop Lennon at the time, God rest him, he was not steady. And like he was going to come. I'm like, he's going to hit my, my, my snot puddle. And he's going to wipe out. And he's, <laughs> We're not, not going to get ordained. He's going to break a hip in the middle of Mass. I got over it. He was fine. It was fine. Okay. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, holy orders, matrimony, all these things. Okay. So these are the seven, seven uh, lights of the sacrament. So we're going to be talking about baptism <laughs> tonight. I love that picture so, so much. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> What's that? 
a double take. That is a candle. It does look like he's puking or something. Yeah. The Orthodox, when they baptize babies, they, they baptize babies totally naked in these big pools, and the priest takes the baby, flips them, he goes, head underwater, feet, head, he just dips them like this. The baby comes out, he's like, oh! I don't know, I think we should bring it back, you know? Okay, so... There's just so much that we could talk about tonight with all of these sacraments, and I'm already behind, but I gotta, I gotta move, get moving. The, the image that I have in my mind is, uh, oops, is, is the image of a diamond, okay, like a multifaceted diamond, that there's so many facets to these mysteries. And what I wanna do as best as I can is try to like, turn the diamond to help us see the facets here. So uh, I want us to gaze on the mystery and the beauty and the power of these sacraments. So. There's, there's many layers of meaning to, to these sacraments. There's spiritual and mystical significance. There's liturgical significance. They affect the moral life. They affect our eternal destiny. There's so much that we could talk about. But where I want to start is with this guy. Anybody know who that is? That's, that's Pope John Paul II. Pope St. John Paul II. That's what a saint looks like as a little kid right there, right there. Look at him. That's Pope John Paul II, Carol Wojtyla, uh, making his uh, first, uh, first Holy Communion. Right there, that picture over there. Um, those are his parents. His mother died shortly after this. That's his dad. So John Paul II, amazing, amazing man. Look at that jawline. I just, every, I look at this picture, I'm like, look at that. He's just, oh. <laughs> That's a... Polish guy who took down communism. I love it. Okay. Um, there's him as a young priest. This is, this is him hanging out with a group of his college students, his friends. They would gather in these communities called Rodzinkas, these little families to, uh, just to be together, to hike, to pray, to understand more of the faith. He did retreats for college kids, for married couples. Every one of his friends who was a, 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 like a, a married woman who became pregnant, he did a whole day-long retreat for for uh, every pregnant woman he knew, uh, just preparing her for motherhood, which I think is really, really beautiful. This is him shaving out in the wilderness, because that's amazing. That's him praying his bravery on a kayak. There's him on a kayak again. That's him wearing some sick sunglasses. Here he is skiing, which I think is so great. And these two awesome pictures. <laughs> So Pope John Paul II, absolutely amazing man, lived an amazing life. They say that he's the most, he was the most visibly seen human being in all of history. More people saw him with their own two eyes than any other person, you know, ever. Um, he had an incredibly difficult life. Like I said, his mother died shortly before, I mean, shortly after he was born. His older sister died before he was born. His older brother died when he was a young boy, and his father died when he was a teenager, so by the time he was in his late teens, he said, everyone that I might have loved or that I did love was gone. He had an amazing intellect, an amazing talent for poetry and the arts, and he thought about being a, a poet and an actor. But he felt this call to priesthood. So he entered a seminary, an underground seminary, while the Nazis were in his home country of Poland. And I'll tell you, like, above-ground seminary, no Nazis that I went through, was plenty hard, okay? <laughs> Underground seminary with the SS walking around, like, and you got to hide from them? That's a whole nother level of difficult that I can't even begin to fathom, right? 
But he did. He entered the seminary, was ordained a priest. He emerges. He becomes a university professor at University of Lublin. Very successful. Shortly after, he becomes a cardinal archbishop, uh, or becomes the archbishop, then the cardinal archbishop. He goes to Rome in 1978 for the first conclave. They, they elect a guy named Albino Luciani, who takes the name of Pope John Paul I. And all the historians were like, oh, excuse me, Holy Father, no offense. You're just Pope John Paul, right? You don't have to say Pope John Paul I because you are the first, right? He goes, no, 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 there will be another. And then 30 days later, he dies. He did a Wednesday general audience on faith, one on hope, one on love, and then he's like, I'm out of here, and he dies. <laughs> so the Cardinals come back to Rome, second time in 1978, and they elect this guy, the first non-Italian pope in over 500 years, Carol Wojtyla, takes the name Pope John Paul II. He canonized more saints than all previous popes combined. He wrote more encyclicals than anybody thought possible. He traveled more miles than any human being ever had. If you take all the miles he traveled and add it up end to end, it's about going to the moon and back eight times. That's unbelievable. Um, he established the World Youth Days. He was instrumental in the fall of communism. He suffered and survived assassination attempts. Uh, he was the subject of the third secret of Fatima, kind of a big deal. He brought the church into the third millennium. He consecrated the world to Mary. Um, so many things, okay? So many things. Huge life, absolutely huge life. So there he is. It's the Vigil of Divine Mercy, April 4th, 2005. Um, well, actually, it was a few days before that. He's talking to, he died on the Vigil of Divine Mercy. He was talking to his Cardinal Secretary, Cardinal Zivich, who asks him, Holy Father, of all the things that you've done in your life, all the things you've accomplished, what's been the most significant? What was the most important day of your life? Thinking maybe like when he got to canonize St. Faustina, the first saint of the new millennium, the saint from his hometown. Uh, that's pretty big. You know, any number of things he could have said. When I got to wear Bono's sunglasses, that was pretty big, you know. But it was none of those things. He said, without missing a beat, he said, the day of my baptism was the most important day of my life. Of my life. And this bro lived a life. He lived a life. Okay, how do we make sense of that? Because baptism is what the church fathers called the porta fidei, the door of faith. It's how you get into the life of grace. It's how you get access to the thing that Jesus came and suffered and died and rose for us to give to us. It's how you get plugged in, right? You got all these electronic things, right? They got this plug on the end. They have this capacity to function, but until they're plugged into the power grid, they're not going to function, right? Baptism is how we get plugged into the life of grace. It's how we get into the life of grace. Baptism is, uh, as Jesus says in the Gospels, it's, it's regeneration, right? Jesus, his conversation with Nicodemus, Nic he says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again of water and the Holy Spirit, born again, right, born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, surely a man cannot re-enter his mother's womb a second time, can he? So here Nicodemus is thinking on the level of, like, nature. He's like, uh, okay, how? <laughs> right? 
If you've seen the Chosen series, Nicodemus in that series is so great. He's like, well, this is a problem because my mother's dead. Right? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a shovel? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> That's terrible. Okay. So uh, notice, though, Jesus doesn't say, um, when Nicodemus says, surely a man cannot reenter his mother's womb. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, nah, no, that's not what I mean. He doesn't say no. He really does mean a kind of regeneration. We have to re-enter the womb. We all enter natural life in the womb of a mother. Right? We all begin this life surrounded by water inside a mother. That's where we all begin, right? That's where we grow. Basic principle of Catholic theology, grace builds on nature, right? Our understanding of the supernatural harmonizes with, is built upon our understanding of the natural, right? So we get into the world of the natural this way. The way we get into the world of the supernatural is a new kind of birth, a, entering a new womb, a new generation, a regeneration. This is what Jesus is talking about. So what Jesus is by nature, what, what is Jesus by nature? What is, what is he? I should say, who is he? He is the son of God, right? He is by nature the son of God, the only begotten. We say that in the creed. The only begotten son of God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. What Jesus is by nature, we become by grace. What Jesus is by nature, we become by grace. We become adopted sons, adopted daughters of God the Father. Right? If you were at Mass uh, this weekend and you heard me preach, I talked about this whole notion of spiritual adoption. Right? St. Paul says we've received a spirit of adoption, right? He chose that word specifically because to be adopted in the ancient world meant that your father, like, well, it meant a few things. It meant that in the ancient world, an adopted person was a new person, right? Their name was changed. Everything about them was changed. If they had debts, those debts were gone because those debts belonged to the old person, right? Um, if they owed anybody anything, right, that was gone. If they were guilty of anything, that was gone because they're a new person, um, additionally, they became, they became totally subject to the rights and privileges of all of the uh, natural-born children of that family. There was no, like, well, we're the real kids and you're the adopted kid. No, you were completely entitled to all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of the natural-born children. And finally, it meant that your father would never abandon you, right? So what Jesus is by nature, the divine son of God, God from God, light from light, we become by grace adopted into God's family. So the catechism talks about several different effects of baptism that I want to talk about. I'm so glad I have my tea. Oh gosh, go back. Okay. Okay. Are we doing good so far? Yeah? Okay. I'm just going to name these and then we're going to go through them. So the first is that we are freed from sin, both personal and original. Which means, brother, when you are baptized, when I waterboard the heck out of you, <laughs> every sin that you have ever committed is completely gone. Completely gone. 
That's why everyone's like, you should, like, that's a great time to play in traffic, right after you've been baptized. So, like, you are, you are as clean as humanly possible, right? Okay. Secondly, we are made new creatures in Christ. That's filial adoption. That's what I was just talking about. We are incorporated into the body of Christ, which is the church. We are made sharers in Christ's identity as priest, prophet, and king. We are marked indelibly, and we are made citizens of the kingdom of heaven. All right, so I want to just dwell on this first one for a second. Remember at the very beginning of the year when I was talking about, I just shared this over, this sweeping overview of the gospel, and I talked about the bad news. Like, if we don't understand the bad news, we're not going to understand the good news, right? The horrible consequences of sin, that we were not just merely separated from God because of original sin, but we were in the grasp of another, Right? Uh, that's what it says in the book of wisdom. Through the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and those who are in his possession experience it, that we were in the grip of the enemy, who is, I talked about him through the lens of a human trafficker. We were apprehended. We were taken. We were taken. Our race, our human race, was held in bondage to the powers of, to the powers of sin and death and Satan. And we were helpless to these powers, absolutely helpless to these powers. I don't remember if I used them as an example, but um, these women, Cleveland natives, right, who were kidnapped by Ariel Castro, they were teenage girls walking home from school at different points, and they were all taken, held in bondage by this psychopath, Ariel Castro, in his basement for over 10 years. He tortured them, he beat them, he raped them, he, 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 he... degraded them in a way that we just can't even fathom in our, in our worst nightmares. Um, I was reading recently about how he would, he would join the search parties with their families. Like he would go out and neighborhood walks with the families of these girls and he would talk to their parents and he would bring back flyers and literature from their parents and he would give it to them and just say, they're never going to find you. Like that's, what, that's the kind of treatment they had for 10 years. So Amanda Berry, um, she, uh, most of them, I, all three of them at different points conceived uh, because of the rapes, but he, he forced abortions upon them. Amanda Berry conceived, and, and for some reason he let her carry this baby to term. She had a little baby who she named um, Jocelyn. So Jocelyn was born in captivity. She was born in Ariel Castro's basement. She was born into a situation of slavery. She was under the dominion of the trafficker, right? By no fault of her own. That was the condition into which she was born, right? Hemmed her in. It defined every part of her life. In baptism, we read this from Colossians. Through Jesus, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, think of Ariel Castro's basement, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In baptism, it's as if God, again, goes to the trafficker and says, and I want that one too. You can't have her. You can't have him. That one's mine. And he brings us out of that place, gives us a new identity, and says, you get to live in the kingdom of the Father. You get to be royalty. You don't have to live like where you lived before. That's what's happening in baptism. All right, so let's go back to these effects. 
made new creatures. We are made new creatures in Christ. This filial adoption piece, right? We receive a fundamentally new identity, like the identity, again, of the Son, that when the Father beholds us, when God the Father looks at you, he sees his Son. We have the same claim on the Father's heart that Jesus did. I've often told this story, that when I was, when I was uh, a little guy growing up, um, I was what they used to call husky before that became politically incorrect, right? It just meant I like to eat sandwiches a lot, all right? So when I would go over at my friends' houses, um, I would get hungry. I'd want a PB&J, you know? And so I'd be, like, in my buddy's basement, Nick, and Nick weighed, like, 50 pounds wet, and uh, he never wanted a sandwich. I always wanted sandwiches, and his mom made the best PB&Js. So I'd be in the basement, and, like, you, like friend protocol, you can't just, like, call up the stairs and be like, hey, Mrs. Waldron, make me a sandwich, you know? Like, you don't do that. You don't do that. What do you do? You ask Nick to do it, right? Hey, Nick, can you ask your mom to make us some sandwiches? Oh, yeah. Hey, mom, can you make us some sandwiches? Oh, yeah, sure. How many? Five. You know? <laughs> Cut off the crust. Diamonds. Jeez, Nick, that's so bossy. That's <laughs> your mother. <coughs> so... What's the point? The point's this, that like, I didn't have the same claim on his mom's heart as he did. He's the son, I'm the friend of the son. That's how I think many of us think of ourselves in relation to the father. Like, God the father loves Jesus, and he likes us. No, 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 no. Like, he responds to us with the same affection, the same attentiveness as he has for Jesus. That's wild. That's wild, but it's true. Okay, we are incorporated into the body of Christ, which is the church. You don't sign up to be a Christian. Like, this process would be a whole lot faster, right? You don't sign up to be a Christian. Like, like when I was in high school, uh, there was a day that was like all the clubs in the school had all their booths set up in the cafeteria, and... Uh, I signed up for like every single club my like junior year of high school because at the end of the year, there was a whole day where all the clubs, it was like photo day. Could Key Club come down to the commons for your photo? And everyone goes from Key Club down to the commons. Could Spanish Club come down to the commons? I wasn't in class the entire day because I was in every single, I was in Chinese Club, I was in Spanish Club, I was in Computer Science Club. I never went to the clubs, but my name was on the sheet, right? <laughs> Gum chewing club, juggling club, you name it, I was in it. I was in it. So that whole day, I didn't have class. It was pretty great. So that's not what it means to be a Christian. <laughs> Hopefully that's clear. No, it's much more like, um, a, like organ donation, okay, like an organ transplant. Uh, we are, you are literally grafted into a living organism. You become part of a living organism. What I think is interesting with, with organ donors, um, like when someone who gets a, a new organ from somebody, they have to take um, all those drugs to, what, what is the word I'm looking for? Anti-rejection, An anti is that what it is? Yeah, anti-rejection drugs so that your body like, is not freaking out, you know, that you have someone else's body in your body. Right? Um, it's almost like the opposite is true as a Christian. It's like we have to constantly take sort of anti-rejection Grace therapy, 
Because our fallen nature constantly wants to pull ourselves out of the body of Christ. Like, I, I want to do it my way, right? That's what the sacraments are for. They keep us grafted into the body. So it's like you literally become part of this living mystical organism, the body of Christ. And like St. Paul says, the body of Christ, just like a living body, has all these different pieces that coordinate together. But like the hand can't do what the foot does. The foot can't do what the ear does. The ear can't do what the eye does. But they're all essential. They're all essential. Even the little pinky toe. That guy's essential somehow, right? Maybe I'm the pinky toe of Christ's body. I don't know. <laughs> Just making sure we don't fall sideways. <laughs> okay. We are made sharers in Christ's identity as priest and prophet and king. We're going to hear more about that, I'm sure, as the year goes on here. But um, these are three fundamental identities of Christ that, that we become uh, participants in. The priest is the one who offers the sacrifice. The prophet is the one who speaks God's word into creation, into society. And the king is the one who orders all things according to God's good order. That's our job as Christians. That we offer our lives, we offer our, yeah, everything of our lives as sacrifice. I do it in a unique way as a consecrated priest, as an ordained priest. You do it as a unique way as, as lay faithful when you come to Mass. You offer sacrifice, which is worship. You offer the sacrifices of your life to the Lord. Prophet, like we need more, we need prophets in our day to day to speak truth, to speak God's word into a, a culture that needs to hear it. And this kingly dimension that like the Lord is a, is a Lord of order, not a Lord of chaos, right? So in our little patches of creation, we are invited to cultivate it, right? The word Cultivate comes from the word cult, cultus, which is where, which means like worship. So like how we worship is meant to cultivate and to bring order to the culture, to the world around us. So um, we are meant to bring God's order into this creation in the measure that we have access to it. Okay? Priest, prophet, and king. The fifth one here, we are marked indelibly. This is, this is really kind of cool, that we are branded, the church says. If you could watch baptism through the eyes of the angels, it's like you see like a searing brand uh, pressing itself upon the soul that like you are marked forever as a Christian. You can only be baptized once. You can't get rebaptized, which is why I want to make it very memorable for you. I don't want you ever to forget, right? Water's going to be very cold. No. It's going to be so cold. He's not in charge. It's going to be floating chunks of ice. It'll be like the Titanic. I want you to feel it, man. So we are branded. Okay, in this last one, we are made citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That, um, like our true homeland, our true homeland is not this world. It's not this world. Our true homeland is heaven. Our true homeland is heaven. This world, we are just pilgrims on the journey passing through. That's it. This entire life is a pilgrimage, making our way to a destination. Okay, so those are the effects of baptism. I'm going to move to confirmation. Um, okay. Let's look at the effects of confirmation. Okay, so... First of all, just like baptism, you are indelibly marked. So you can only be confirmed once. 
There's some of these sacraments, you just can do it once, right? Confirmed once. The second one is a strengthening of baptismal graces. What does that mean? It means that um, in baptism, you are given like those, those graces to live as part of the body of Christ, to, be, to live in that identity as the Son. In confirmation, it's like the Holy Spirit is stirring those up in you. It's a strengthening of those things. And you receive that through the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you'll hear it as this great prayer that gets prayed over you. We pray for the spirit of wisdom and fortitude, understanding, knowledge, piety, all these things. We pray for these gifts of the Holy Spirit to descend upon you, to fill you. Now, here's the thing about these gifts. These gifts are not meant for you. She's like, what? I like gifts. No, these gifts are meant to be used by you for the sake of others. For the, for, they're for the sake of of living the mission, right? These are, we'll talk about these more, but they're, they're for the sake of evangelization. This sacrament, confirmation, is a sacrament of evangelization, a sacrament of mission. It's about empowering you with the juice, with the gifts, with the power to go out. The fourth one here is empowered to witness. That's what I was just saying. It's about going out. This word witness, you know what the word witness in Greek is? Holly, do you know? martyr martyrioi holly's favorite word <laughs> martyrioi right so the word if you hear the word martyrioi in greek you hear both martyr as in someone who's put to death and you also hear witness right so if this is a sacrament that's empowering us to witness it's simultaneously empowering us to live a kind of martyrdom which doesn't necessarily mean like we'll bleed out for christ could mean that it could mean a green martyrdom, like a sacrifice of just finances, of just money. It could mean a white martyrdom, all sorts of like little deaths along the way. But it could mean a red martyrdom. So we're, we're, we're empowered to witness. And finally, we're set apart for service, set apart for mission. Okay. I think this is a perfect spot for a little break. Okay. Should we do like a little five-minute break? Okay. Five-minute break and come on back. Refresh your drinks. A little musical interlude. Uh huh. It's so loud. It's like, that's how high it is on here. And I come look over here. The house was shaking. The house was shaking. Oh my God. Great. But I'm easily scared. 
Sign crooked. Did I? I saw that. I don't know why they didn't the just. Yeah, yeah. Or like it's just not. I don't know. There's something about it that's like not right. My son Drew's now seeing his card. Like got a bunch of cardinals here. Are you serious? We'll, we'll chat afterwards. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's keep on going. So this is this this next section of this the presentation tonight. I I my classmate in seminary, uh, Father James Colway. He's the parochial vicar down at St. Barnabas in Northfield. Awesome, awesome priest, really great man. Uh, we used to say that he's he's the world's nicest man <laughs> in seminary. He just is. He's just the world's nicest man. Um, but we were in seminary. He would get frustrated with different teachers or professors who we just we just felt like, man, why are we reading this book and not this book? And James would just complain and just say, just give us the gold, just give us the gold, like give us like the really good rich stuff, give us like the the meaty stuff. Um, what I want to do here in this next section, I want to give you the gold of when it comes to baptism, when it comes to confirmation. Um, 
I want to pull back the veil. So like I said at the beginning, there's different layers that we can look at these sacraments through different lenses. Um, I want to pull back the curtain and just kind of have us contemplate, look at, be in awe of the, what I want to call the mystical depths of uh, these sacraments. And maybe as you're listening, you're just kind of like, whoa, Father, I don't know. Like, it's kind of, this is a lot. That's okay. You can take in as much as you want. You can tune me out. That's, that's okay. Like, you don't, this is not a prerequisite. Like, this is not necessary knowledge for getting baptized or confirmed. It's just, you know, I forget which church father said about the gospel of John. They said, it's, it's, it's shallow enough that a mouse could walk through and deep enough that an elephant could dive, like dive down, could swim through. Same with these sacraments. We could look at it through a sort of narrow lens, but we could also like drop the floor out and say, this is how deep this goes. And it is deep. So you ready to go deep? Yes? Okay. Uh, that's a cool image. This is, this is the last Da Vinci that was found recently. It's Jesus, the uh, Salvador Mundi, savior of the world. I just find it just arresting, so powerful. But that's what we're talking about. So let's start with this quote. By the way, this image on the right-hand side here is a sculpture by Gian Lorenzo Bernini. It's in Santa Maria della Vittoria, a church in Rome. And it's depicting a moment from her life. It's called uh, Teresa in Ecstasy is the name of the sculpture. The moment that it's depicting is a moment she came to call the transverberation. It's this powerful, mystical encounter she had with the, with the love of God. She wrote in her journal that I was caught up in prayer and a cherub, an angel with a flaming dart, began to pierce my heart over and over and over again. She said, such that I felt simultaneously so much agony and so much ecstasy at the same time that I wished it to stop immediately and I wished it to go on forever. After she died, when they did an autopsy of her body, they removed her heart and they found an actual cauterized scar on her heart. Crazy. She's experiencing what the church calls nuptial union, this profound union of the soul and body of a person with God. God uniting himself, giving himself, pouring his love into a human person. And it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. So from my, one of my favorite paragraphs of the Catechism, paragraph 1617, the entire Christian life, how much of the Christian life? Thanks for playing. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the church. Just let's stay with that for a second. The entire Christian life. So we could ask the question, what is this whole thing about? It's about this insane, un fathomable love, this conspiracy of love that God has, that he's orchestrating all things to bring us into communion with him. Not just friendship, not just being buddies, not just working for Jesus, fighting for Jesus, laboring in the vineyard. In the end, in the final analysis, the church is teaching us that it's 
all about union. And the least inadequate image to understand this union, the church is saying, is marriage. Marriage. We'll talk more about that. The catechism continues. Already baptism, which is the entry into the people of God, is a nuptial mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast, which is the Eucharist. Christian marriage, in its turn, becomes an efficacious sign, the sacrament of the covenant of Christ and the church. Since it, since it signifies and communicates grace, marriage between baptized persons is a true sacrament of the new covenant. Okay, so let me break this part a little bit more. So when you hear nuptial mystery, think... It's referring to spousal love, the mystery of man and woman in our femininity, in our masculinity, the call of the two to come together in one flesh, the becoming of one flesh, brides and grooms, weddings, right? It's referring to the fact that if you really want to understand God and Jesus and the church, God's desires and his plans for us, the church is saying, like, human love and marriage is like the decoder ring, it's the lens. This is how we understand. Like, I need glasses to see, okay? Everything is, you're all, you're all blurry to me right now, right? Like, you're all fuzzy. I need lenses to see the reality. The lenses to see the Christian mystery properly is the spousal lens. It's the spousal lens. Does that make sense? Or do I need to keep explaining that? I, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep explaining it, but... Okay, I'm going to keep going. All right. Christopher West, who's one of the greatest ex, uh, teachers of, of this whole notion of the nuptial mystery, he says this. So the catechism states that, the, that baptismal grace has begotten us in the womb of the church. This is paragraph 2040. Baptism begets us, generates us, in the womb of the church we may be inclined to dismiss such language as, as a merely poetic way of describing some ethereal reality. But for Mother Church, the spiritual truth becomes quite concrete in the visualization of the liturgical rite. Inscribed in the baptistry of the Pope's Cathedral in Rome, we read, at this font, the church, our mother, gives birth from her virginal womb to the children she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. The Pope's Cathedral in Rome. This is not an incidental little church somewhere in Timbuktu, right? The Pope's Cathedral. This is the mother church of Rome, right? And even listen to the language I'm using, the mother church, right? We call, it, we call her Holy Mother Church. Like, th all of this is, this is what's beneath the surface. This is the gold, right? Something very profound. Churches, like, the way the church understands it is that, like, again, we enter, all of us enter the natural world through the generation of father and mother. We grow in the womb of mother. We enter the spiritual world, the supernatural world, through the supernatural regeneration, through Christ the bridegroom, 
and the church. And it's this virginal, spiritual coming together, right? The spiritual builds on the natural. The natural points to the supernatural. Okay. And I'm just going to keep going. We're just going to keep unpacking this because this is very, very powerful. The early church envisions the baptismal font not just as like, it's not like a bathtub. It's not like, it's not just a, a ritual. Like the, for Jews, the mikvah baths where, where they would wash themselves in these ceremonial washings. They were just big pools. For the early Christians, you read what they wrote about it. They had this vision that it was, it was like a womb. It was like a womb where Christians are born. Okay, and every Sunday in the creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of what kind of life? Natural life or supernatural life? Supernatural life. Supernatural life. Over the baptismal font, before Deacon Richard and I like, do baptisms, we bless the water and we are calling down who? The Holy Spirit, who again is the Lord and giver of, right? In the old ritual of baptism, the priest would pray over the waters and he would say, fructify these waters. Three times, fructify these waters, fructify these waters. You don't say these kind of words anymore, but it means make these waters fertile. Make these waters fertile. Let the seed of divine regeneration, the Holy Spirit, come down into this womb so that out of this womb will be birthed a Christian. You see what's happening? You see how it's like just so much more than someone getting wet, right? It's, it's quite a bit more. It's quite a bit more. Okay. Brant Petrie, who's one of the greatest uh, scripture scholars alive today, he says this. If Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride, then Christian baptism is more than just a sign of repentance, an ordinance, or a ritual of initiation, as I was just saying. Thank you, Brant. It is the bridal bath by which Jesus cleanses us from sin so that we can be united to God. Okay, let's talk about this concept of the bridal bath. In the ancient world, weddings were kind of different than how weddings are today. They, they still had a best man. His name was the Shoshbim in Hebrew. Have you ever been a best man? You've been a, show, a Shoshbim? Chris the Shoshbim? Okay, so you had a best man, you had a bridal party, you had, obviously, bride, you had the bridegroom, you had all the guests. Okay, so you had all these things. But there was these slightly different customs. Like, for example, one of the jobs of the best man was he had to help prepare the bride for her wedding. And one of the ways that he would help prepare the bride was it was the Shosh Beam's job to make sure that the bride got herself a bath before the wedding. He didn't do it. He just made sure. He's like, you make sure you get yourself a bath, lady, right? He had to ensure that she got washed before the wedding, right? That she would be anointed with perfumed oils. It was the best man's job to make sure that the bride was washed. Because like you didn't take a lot of baths in the ancient world. And if you wanted to smell nice before your wedding, is a, that's, I mean, it makes sense to smell nice before your wedding, I suppose, right? Assuming also the bridegroom took a bath, I, I would assume, right? I don't think anybody, I don't know if anybody had the job to make sure he took a bath. Okay. So the, 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 the best man had to make sure the bride got a bath. She got washed before the wedding. Look at this quote. 
In both Jewish and Greek cultures of that time, the, immediately, the immediate cosmetic preparation of the bride included a bath with fragrant oils so that she could be as clean and as beautiful as possible. Baptism, Paul is saying, is the, is the church's bridal bath that prepares her to be united to her bridegroom. Prepares her to be united to her bridegroom. Let's look at this. We've got to rethink then this guy. Who the heck is John the Baptist? And what is he actually doing out there in the wilderness? Okay, so John the Baptist, he says these very enigmatic things that if you don't know Jewish customs, you're like, what is he saying? He says things like, I am the friend of the bridegroom. Translation, I am the shosh beam. That's what he's saying. He's claiming to himself, I'm the best man. I'm the best man. And what's the best man's number one job when it comes to a wedding? He has to make sure the bride gets what? A bath. What the heck is he doing out in the wilderness then? He is preparing the bride for the coming bridegroom, right? That's what he's doing in the Jordan River. It says all of Jerusalem is coming out to him to be baptized by John. That's what's going on. He was preparing the bride for the coming of the bridegroom. He's not just like, all right, you sinners, you brood of vipers, get yourself in line, let's get you baptized. He was doing that, but on the deeper level, right? On the deeper level. When you read all the symbolism, when you think through it, he's preparing the bride for the coming of the bridegroom. The coming of the bridegroom. Again, because we teach as Catholics that the source and summit of the Christian life is not merely the forgiveness of sins. That rocks, but that's not the high point of our faith, right? The source and summit of the Catholic life, the Christian life, is not the confessional. It's the Eucharist, right? The confessional, the forgiveness of sins, what John is doing, the washing, it's preparatory for the communion, the Holy Communion, the coming together of the two, right? Jesus and his church. That's the nectar of the gospel. That's the incredible good news. That's the, that's the gooey center of the Cinnabon right there, right there. That's the gooey, oh man, that's the center, right? So many Christians, so many Catholics have it in their minds that like Jesus simply came to forgive us our sins. That's true. That rocks. What an amazing gift. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. That's not even the good part. <laughs> You're skipping over the good, yada, yada, yada. You're going yada, yada, yada to the good part, right? It's the source, the source and summit is communion. Eucharist is the high point. Okay, so John the Baptist is preparing the bride. He's preparing the bride for the coming of the bridegroom. Jean Cardinal Danielou, a good Frenchman, he says this. Baptism is seen in its fullness as a nuptial mystery. The soul, until now a simple creature, becomes the bride of Christ. Even dudes. We'll talk about that in a second. When she comes out of the baptismal water in which he has purified her in his blood, he welcomes her in her white bridal robe and receives the promise which binds her to him forever. Okay, little, when, when 
like when parents, when you've brought your little babies to the church to be baptized, what are they wearing? Holly, what are they wearing? A little white baptismal gown. You go to the, uh, in the gospel where Jesus talks about, okay, there's a king who's throwing a wedding feast for his son and he's inviting everybody. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven is like a king who throws a wedding feast. And Jesus is like, do you get what I'm saying? And everyone's invited. And there was one person in the wedding feast who was doing something wrong. Anybody remember what that guy had going on wrong? He wasn't wearing the wed- He wasn't wearing the right garment. He was. He wasn't wearing the wedding garment. In heaven, you just fast forward to the book of Revelation. All the saints surrounding the throne, they ain't wearing togas because no one. Like they ran out of pants in the heavenly, you know, superstore supermarket. They're wearing white robes. It's this. It's this baptismal, bridal imagery. The church is the bride of Christ. Individual soul, you are the beloved of Christ, the bride of Christ. In the mystery of our masculinity and femininity, God created femininity to be a sign. Listen, gentlemen, listen, my brothers. He created femininity femininity to be a sign of receptivity. All of humanity, all of humanity, we are called to stand receptive and open before God, all of us. Women in your like biological, physiological makeup, God has carved that very mystery into your bodies. But even we as men are called to enter into that mystery of receptivity. We are called to receive deep in our hearts the love of God. That's why we are all the bride of Christ. That's why we are all the bride of Christ. I'm telling you, this stuff is deep. This stuff is deep. You're doing okay? Yeah? We don't have Alex's cupcakes to keep us awake, but you're doing okay? Okay. Okay. Um, okay, Brant Peacher again. Baptism is more than the forgiveness of sins. As I was saying, Brant, thank you. It is a sacrament of intimate union with Jesus through which the individual believer becomes part of the mystical body of all believers, the church, the bride. Baptism is the way that Jesus communicates his love as bridegroom to each person. So you can think of it this way. Uh, Okay. Okay, right. So Jesus on the cross. The, The church in her wisdom calls this day when he was on the cross what? Good Friday. Good Friday? But he's dying. Why do we call it Good Friday? Are we just crazy people? We like people being crucified? We call it Good Friday because what's revealed on the cross is the love of God poured out for humanity. Jesus calls that hour his hour of glory. In the, in the Gospel of John, right? On the cross, you have the bridegroom giving his life away, pouring his life out to the bride. Like every man who's ever gotten married, you, you are trying throughout the, the entirety of your living life to do what he did on this cross. That's what you're attempting to do. 
and you don't do it perfectly, just will consult your brides. Right? Like, <laughs> you're attempting to be poured out, right? That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to be poured out. Here's my heart. You've, my beloved one, you've pierced my heart and I will pour out my love to you. I'll pour out my life to you. That's what, that's, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, St. Paul says, right? So this is Good Friday because he's pouring out divine love into the heart of the bride. And in this quote here, Brant Preachy says, baptism is the way that Jesus communicates his love as bridegroom to each person. So you want to think of it this way, like it's as if like when you are baptized, the soldier pierces his side and says blood and water flow out of his side. And it's like, how does that love that came pouring out of him reach me? I'm alive in the year 2022 in Wadsworth. I'm not alive in Jerusalem in the year 33. How does that reach me? How does that touch me? How does that get to me? Baptism. It's as if when you are baptized, that flood water just gushes upon you. That's what you are baptized in. Not just like a bowl of water that we just happen to have from the sacristy. You are being baptized in the flow of love that comes from his heart. That's how it reaches you. That's how you are yanked out of Ariel Castro's basement. That's how the father says, that one's mine. Mine. I'm telling you, it's deep. It's so deep. You doing okay? Okay, I'm going to talk about confirmation. I'm going to pull back the bell on confirmation. Okay. All right, let's say a word now about confirmation. What confirmation, first of all, is not this is helpful. Confirmation is not uh, you confirming your faith, right? You're not saying, yes, I, I like, do you concur? I concur. I am Catholic. I, 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 I confirm, yes. <laughs> do you concur, doctor? I concur. <laughs> you are not just merely saying, I want to be Catholic. I've, I've heard many wonderful bishops preach homilies at confirmation masses where they say to the kids, when you were a baby, your parents got you baptized and they said yes for you. Well, now you're old enough and you get to say yes for yourself. And you know what? That's a mighty fine Lutheran theology of confirmation, but that ain't a Catholic theology of confirmation. Like it's, it's not the Catholic bar mitzvah. It's not the Catholic coming of age. Now you're an adult in the church. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. Confirmation is the, I'm going to read this from the, from the, doesn't matter, you don't care. Confirmation is the sacrament of initiation by which God passes on the grace of Pentecost. I love that. He passes on the grace of Pentecost and perfects the grace received in baptism. Okay, so what happened at Pentecost? So you've got all the apostles they have, they, ha they had seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. They've seen Jesus walk on water. Then they saw Jesus get crucified and killed. And then they've seen him resurrected. 
But where are they still? In the upper room. Even though they've, they've already seen the resurrected Christ, they have not yet been like, let's go, right? There is still like, oh man, I don't know, man. Are you sure we can't be fishermen again? Right? Like they are still afraid. It's not until the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. And by the way, every painting of Pentecost is garbage, okay? <laughs> Maybe not every painting, like, but most of them are because they make the, the, the flame, they make them look like human birthday candles, okay? Like there they all are, they're like, oh. And it's like little flicker flame above their head. The word in Greek is like, it, better translation for us today is like, like a flamethrower descended upon them, just like, okay? And like these guys, they are not like, oh, yes, Brother Andrew, do you see the fire? Like they are for sure like, like losing their minds, okay? So the church teaches that confirmation is when that moment, that power gets passed on to you, right? The immediate effect of them being baptized by the, or the Holy Spirit descending upon them is they left the upper room with power, conviction, boldness, and with an ability to evangelize like they never had before, right? Peter's Pentecost sermon, 3,000 people convert that day. They're cut to the heart. They're like, what should we do? He says, get baptized, get baptized. So clearly in the scriptures, what we see in the scriptures is there's a distinction between baptism on the one hand and this reception or this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on, on the other hand. <clears throat> You've got the apostles saying, like visiting people, yeah, we've been baptized. Well, have you received the Holy Spirit yet? No, we haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. Or they're saying, pray, like ask for Peter to come to us to lay hands upon us that we might receive the Holy Spirit. So it's this separate moment of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. Like I said, it's a sacrament of evangelization. It moves us out, giving us the gifts of the Spirit. So let me talk about these gifts. The first one is wisdom. I love these definitions. Wisdom is not the quoting of facts. Wisdom is a gift that allows a person to understand things from God's point of view. Man, do we need that right now so bad. I pray for wisdom all the time. Lord, help me see what the heck is happening. But from like your vantage point, help me see this person. Help me see this situation. Help me see what's going on. But through your eyes, through, through what's going on, from your perspective, that's wisdom. The second one is understanding. While wisdom is the desire to contemplate the things of God, understanding allows us to grasp, at least in a limited way, the very essence of the truths of the Catholic faith. Through understanding, we gain a certitude about our beliefs that moves beyond faith. So understanding is getting more cemented in like, yes, I, I, I believe this. I believe this faith. I might not totally understand it, but understanding is it's a filling of the, that faculty of your intellect that's, that can assent to the truths of the faith. Makes it more easy to assent to the truths of the faith. Third one is counsel. The gift of counsel is also known as a gift of right judgment. So counsel is the perfection of the cardinal virtue of prudence. So prudence is the, um, what ancient philosophers 
taught, they said it's knowing the right thing to do at any given time, right? What should I do right now? What's the, what's the right thing to do in the right way, in the right time, right? All those things. It's, it's having right action. Counsel is that virtue, though, supernaturalized with a, like aimed at faith and hope and love. What's, what's the right thing I need to do in the right way when it comes to faith, hope, and love? The fourth one here is fortitude, also known as the gift of courage. Through this gift, a person is no longer afraid to stand up for God and his truths. A person who has the gift of fortitude will stand up for good against evil and is convicted to take a stand when the occasion arises. We need some more of that. Knowledge. The gift of knowledge allows a person to understand the meaning and purpose that God has for him and to or him or her and to live up to that meaning. So knowledge is, is like a personal thing. Like, Lord, what are you asking me to do in my life? Piety is the next one. It's the perfection of the virtue of religion. This is fascinating. While we tend to think of religion today as the external elements of our faith, it really means the willingness to worship and to serve God. That's what religion means. Piety takes that willingness beyond a sense of duty so that we desire to worship God and to serve him out of love, the way that we desire to honor our parents and do what they wish. So it's piety is like, Lord, I, wanna, I, I really want to love coming to Mass. I want to love the things that you love. Take me out of just simply like doing this for the sake of duty because I'm afraid to go to hell. Like, I want to do this because I love you, right? The last one is fear of the Lord. The gift of fear of the Lord puts God in the proper perspective. A person with this gift understands the greatness and awesomeness of the Lord. They want to serve him because of who he is. A person with the gift of fear of the Lord understands everything they are is due to the wonder, love, grace, and perfection of God. They are totally dependent on the Lord as a child is to a parent. The gift of fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Psalms say. So it's, it's, a, it's a, like, you are God and I am not. You are in control and I am not. You are calling the shots and I am not. You have the authority, I do not. It's the proper wording of these things. So this sacrament of confirmation, it's, it's like I said, a sacrament of witness, which is also a sacrament of, Holly, Martyrdom, martyrdom. And we see that specifically in this gesture that happens in the sacrament. So one of the, one of the moments of the ritual will be this laying on of hands where I will literally lay my hands down on your head. This gesture comes from the Old Testament priests who in the temple, person would bring to the priest the animal for sacrifice. And the priest would lay his hands on the animal's head. So if you are a bull and you live in the Jerusalem area and someone brings you into the, the temple area, you're like, wow, this is cool, right? And you see a priest walking towards you like this. You better run. You're about to get your throat slit, right? You're about to become a burnt offering. Okay, so, yeah. So this gesture Setting apart this thing for sacrifice happens in the ritual of confirmation. You are set apart. You are set apart. Set apart for what? To witness. And so often when we witness in this fallen world, it will involve a kind of martyrdom. 
You're going to bleed somehow. You might bleed on social media. You might bleed friendships, but you might bleed family members. If you're going to witness in this world that's just so hateful of God and the things of God, you're going to bleed. You're going to bleed. So that's the good news, everybody. <laughs>